always excited about our podcast episodes. Doing this podcast with Liana and Rich and Mark is a special one, though, because uh, it feels like this is a inside the family conversation since I've been working with Rich and Mark for a long time now, and Liana has been supporting us and making sure that we actually get this podcast done now for multiple years. So today we're going to have a family chat. Now, that doesn't mean that we're not going to ask Rich all the tough questions, but first, welcome to you, Rich. Thanks for coming on our podcast. I have been begging Rich to come on our podcast for a while now, and Mark has been excited about the prospect of having somebody who actually knows about local governments come on our podcast, but he just would ignore those emails and texts of mine until he did a podcast for my colleague, Mike Livermore. And then I was able to use the guilt factor of how could you do a podcast for Mike Livermore and not come on our podcast. So finally, Rich has come to our podcast reluctantly. So thank you, Rich, and welcome to our podcast. Oh, me too. Thank you for having me. This is very exciting, actually. I was not resistant at all. I just wanted to make sure you weren't doing it out of obligation. No, I, I, I am still worried that your agent is going to contact us and send us a bill uh, shortly because I have heard that there are some law professors who have agents and they will come on your podcast, but they they charge you like a ten or fifteen thousand dollar fee, and you know, given that our advertising revenues on this podcast are rather small, we're we're just not going to be able to pay your bill, Rich. Not going to be able to pay your bill. But let's get to some of the substance. And part of the reason we are excited about having Rich come on our podcast is that he's an expert in an area that doesn't get much attention from the legal academy and yet is incredibly important, at least in the debt area, because a huge amount of the global debt market involves sort of what we would call sub-sovereign debt that is raised at the city or state level or these in-between uh, creations that are governmental, but not a purely sovereign. So, and Rich has this exciting new book about city power uh, that he's just written about the rise in the importance of cities. And as I understand it, about how it's really important to think about cities versus states. And while we're going to take the conversation in the direction of talking primarily about debt dynamics, I thought it would help us as a starting point to get a sense from Rich about what is exciting about cities, why write a book about cities, and why write all these articles about cities. Uh, and I would not have normally thought it was so exciting, but even I'm excited about cities now, thanks to Rich. So Rich, why are you? why did you get excited about this? 
Well, th thanks me too. Um, uh, uh, so I'll just say a little bit, which is, uh, you know, I'm, I'm sort of a frustrated urban planner, I guess, and I teach property and land use um, and other, other topics, but also urban law and policy. And cities to me is, uh, are where all the action is. Uh, I think uh, increasingly what folks are realizing or have realized for some time is that cities are the uh, basis for economic development in their nations and in their regions. And um, what we've what we've seen on a regular basis is claims about the demise of the city, and that, in, particularly in the second half of the 20th century in the United States, there were long, uh, sort of long claim, long long held claims that the city was uh, was um, um, obsolete in part because of technology. Um, but it turned out in the late 20th century, in the early 21st century, cities have resurged and come back and been become more desirable places for firms and individuals to to reside in. Not all cities, of course, but lots of cities. And so um, I think um, my interest in cities comes from thinking about how people live together in space. But it also comes out of thinking about trying to think a little bit about how does economic growth happen? How do cities grow and decline? What's happening when those things happen um, in the world? And that seems to me to be the basis for thinking about states, regions, and nations also. So Rich, this, this focus on economic growth allows us to talk a little bit about debt. And Mark and I, you know, we have a singular focus on debt and government debt, although Mark knows other things as well, I, I don't. But in the, in the literature on debt, uh, one of the primary reasons to think about how sovereigns or sub-sovereigns are organized is that those methods of organizing or those methods of setting up the rules for how a local government will be constrained are thought to impact the cost of capital of these local governments. And the local government could be at the city level. Many cities have incredible power in terms of being able to raise capital. And if growth is directly tied to your ability to borrow, because if you can borrow, then you can invest in the future and then, then you'll grow, then debt is a crucial part of the story and the ability to raise debt is a crucial part of the story. And my sense from your book is that you are a little bit skeptical about this uh, sort of single-minded focus on how can we raise debt more cheaply. Yeah, so I, I guess I guess I, I the book doesn't talk that much about credit markets and debt, but it does talk a lot about mobile capital, which is the which is a catch-all for me for finance capital moving in and out of certain places, but also individual workers, firms coming in and investing, uh, placing their businesses in in a particular location, and that's what a city is. It's an agglomeration of a bunch of different things, labor capital and 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 um, uh, other factors. And 
one of the things that we one of the models that we use for thinking about these these cities these is a model of of, of interjurisdictional competition. We think cities are competing for mobile capital. They're com competing for for investment essentially, and when they uh, and when they fail to do a good job, investment flees and the city um, uh, declines. And when they do a good job, investment pours in and the city prospers. And the book is about how that, that kind of simplistic model, we actually know it's not quite right, but we sort of use it a lot in law and in, in when we're thinking about policymaking. That model is not quite right. What we know is that uh, often the the investment or disinvestment in a particular city is outside the control of the of city policy. It's 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 more related to macroeconomic factors, changes in technology, uh, shifts in policy at the federal or state level. Lots of times that's the case, and so this idea that cities should be competing to uh, attract uh, favorable mobile factors, including investment is um, I think it's a mistaken way to think about what the city does. The, the book has an elaborate argument about how we're not quite sure what generates growth and decline in our cities. And that one of the things we should be doing is thinking about how to manage cities so that they can survive and manage the inevitable booms and busts of, of economic growth and decline. And that's what we've seen, or we see this over the course of 200 year history, over the last hundred years, we've certainly seen that. That growth and decline, um, we don't have great answers for why that occurs in particular circumstances. We have some answers to that. But part of the way we should structure our, uh, our distribution of power among governments and the uh, ability to, to get access to the credit market, markets should be in in, in the context of a of an economy that does go through booms and busts um, and goes through what I call spatial booms and busts, right? Some cities are up, some cities are down. Um, right now, we think mainly that cities need to be disciplined not to overborrow and not to overspend. And so we've used certain strategies in state constitutions uh, mainly, but the the credit markets also to discipline local governments. And I think that's the wrong approach. We shouldn't be trying to discipline local governments. We should be trying to think about how we can help them manage stable, uh, to, to, to maintain a stable fiscal environment for themselves. So part of this, I think is a, this echoes some of the debates and some of the research findings in the sovereign debt area where you, if the claim underlying this sort of capital flight, uh, mobile capital argument is that it, investors are super sensitive to potential differences in city policies, in um, city attitudes to borrowing and so forth, then, you know, the capital markets are serving this, this substantial disciplining function, when in reality, it, it doesn't look like they serve that function much, much at all. I'm wondering, though, so one of the things that we see in the sovereign debt space is that if capital is not quite the disciplining factor that it's sometimes claimed to be, that seems to be like news to politicians <laughs> like they act like they are um, under tremendous constraints 
by uh, capital markets. They don't um, uh, push to restructure debt when it would be clearly in um, in the interests of the population to do it. They um, they don't introduce changes to debt instruments that they are told the market might react badly to, even though sort of there's no evidence to think the market would react badly at all. So I guess I'm wondering about how city political leaders behave. Do they act as if they are always in fear of capital flight, or do their incentives lead them in a different direction? So it's a great question. And Mark, I think the parallels are, are apt ones. So it's, it is interesting that I think there is a great deal of concern about, say, a ratings downgrade for your city. And often uh, uh, pub, uh, local public officials celebrate their solid credit rating um, and 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 tout their 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 fiscal chops in various ways and the rate the ratings and the ability to get credit is obviously important to that and there are some effects uh when uh there is a ratings downgrade or there's uh, fiscal distress but as you point out in the sovereign context they're not uh they're they're certainly overstated and i think we're finding that in the in the municipal context, they're overstated too. And I've used that literature to argue that the fear of a ratings downgrade or credit response is, 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 is very much overstated. That doesn't mean that there aren't local governments that are in fiscal distress. There are. It's just that um, trying to keep your credit rating up is not going to help the, the deindustrializing, incredibly poor city that does not have uh, resources to keep the streetlights on. That is not where we want to be. And in fact, when we see when we looked at the Detroit bankruptcy, what we see is they're back in the credit markets pretty quickly. And reorganizing that debt was was they probably waited too long to do that, I think. So I I'm I, I also would just point out that the credit markets, they want to sell debt and they will sell debt up to the to, to the last minute to these uh, cities and to um, uh, and to states too, and they're not particularly uh, uh, attentive to the to the risk. So one thing you could be trying to do is prevent the the debt markets from sell overselling debt. But we've seen even in the 19th century um, and long before today and long before the the Great Recession that followed 2008 that. Folks were aware that the bankers and the, the credit markets were pushing debt onto onto local governments, and um, so the credit markets don't seem to me to be good barometers of what's coming down the pike. And um, and and when they when they stop lending, it's often too late. Um, uh, another example is New York City, right? The debt crisis in the early '70s. Uh, There's a lot of talk about how the city would not be able to get in, back into the credit markets if they default and so on. They did get some bailout funds from the federal government eventually, although Gerald Ford, the president, initially did not want to do so. Um, uh, uh, but um, it turns out then the banks didn't flee from New York City or from lending to New York City. And so I think we're mistaken to think that the credit markets um, do a great job at, uh, or even a good job at disciplining um, the borrowing of, of local governments in this way. And so one implication uh, is presumably that these 
constraints on borrowing that states impose on cities ought to be ought to be relaxed. I guess I, I, you probably get this question all the time, but I'm thinking about the internal political sort of red state blue city divides that seem to be characteristic of almost every major city I can think of and how those play out in everything from sort of so-called sanctuary policies to to everything else. And so what are the political dynamics of allowing cities more freedom to govern? It's sort of the the armchair impression that I get is that every tool of control states can wield, they like to wield just to keep the more progressive liberal cities uh, uh, sort of under control. So can you just talk a little bit about the political dynamics? Yeah, for sure. So um, uh, I think what we're seeing recently, and you pointed this out, Mark, is the is sort of what what some have called the, a kind of a preemption explosion, which is, um, and this is often in states, red states with blue cities, as you point out, which is states coming in and overriding or preempting or getting rid of local efforts along many dimensions. Uh, you can imagine the municipal minimum wage movement, um, anti-discrimination law, um, uh, uh, policing has been a big issue, gun control, uh, all these hot button issues that um, that we've seen in the past, in the, particularly in the past decade or, or a little bit longer. And that's often a red, again, as, as you say, a red state, blue blue city phenomenon. But it turns out that's in, this is why I wrote a book called City Power. It turns out even in states where there is, um, say, blue states and blue cities, um, California, New York, or other places, state legislators are very eager to constrain local power, and they've constrained local power in lots of different ways. Um, it might be specific to things like gun regulation or minimum wage, but also since the 19th century, um, and then again in the 20th century, there have been state limitations on uh, local, local governments taking on debt, so debt limitations, and then tax and expenditure limitations, or TELS is what these are sometimes abbreviated. And the, the TELS came in uh, later. So Proposition 13 in California is a, one of the first examples of this, but other states followed, which limits the, the revenue-raising ability of local governments. So local governments under state constitutions and state statutes, but often under state constitutions, are limited in their ability to take on debt and to tax and spend in various ways. Um, these 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 restrictions I call the uh, have been called the fiscal constitution by by academics writing in this area, and it's there's no real analog in the U.S. Constitution to these kinds of restrictions, and they were initially intended. In the, in the 19th century to prevent local governments from going too deep into debt, uh, the state legislatures thought that cities were giving away the store, right? They were corrupt. They were handing franchises out to the electric companies, the water companies, and especially to the railroads. And that put uh, the taxpayers, local taxpayers on the hook for these financing of essentially private enterprise infrastructure in many cases, but also it benefited private actors. 
And so there was a worry that the local governments were captured by these interest groups and the state legislature was coming in to restrain them. But I think what those have done essentially, for example, a debt limitation essentially forces local governments instead of raising debt on their own, they we now have these special purpose governments that are created that can that 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 the debt limitation doesn't apply to. And so we get a proliferation of these unique entities that are able to issue debt around the debt limitations that are in constitutions. Uh, state constitutions. And so what you've seen is uh, local entities still trying to pay for services and raise money, but they have to do it through a backdoor way and it's susceptible to courts and it's not very effective, these debt limitations. By the same token, on taxing limitations, it means that when a government wants to raise money, it might have to go to the state legislature and the state legislature, if it's uh, is often hostile to tax tax uh, increases, even if the local populace and the local citizenship wants those tax increases. Often, politically, the state legislators are going to say, no, we don't want to be tagged with the idea that we've raised taxes. And so you get a real disjuncture in the political interests between the state and the local governments. State legislatures are apt to force costs onto local governments but not give them the resources, this is the unfunded mandates debate, not give them the resources or even the revenue raising capacity to then meet those responsibilities. And so that is an intergovernmental dynamic that's very hard to, uh, to, um, to resist. So Rich, just to get clear on these limitations, so, at a very simplistic level, I've always uh, I've always understood these limitations in the U.S. states as attempts to build credibility at the state level to enable their local municipalities and the state itself to borrow. And in fact, academic researchers and uh, economists in particular have always liked the U.S. context because there's so much variation across the states in terms of things like the debt limitation, whether or not local municipalities are authorized uh, to use federal bankruptcy, taxation limitations, or sort of more nuanced limitations that might affect school districts or hospitals, or, you know, just, just there seems to be a, a plethora of complicated local rules constraining and supporting a multi trillion dollar market. But listening to you and uh, reading some of your articles. I think in in 2012, you had a couple of articles on uh, debt markets, uh, debt and democracy and citizens and bondholders, if I remember the titles correctly. And you, you are deeply skeptical that any of these work, and they mostly seem to be historical artifacts, including these state debt limits, that seem to have basically 
never worked. Now, of course, we're all thinking about debt limits these days because we have a federal debt limit. And that also seems to be a product of uh, the same period of time and, and also seems to be utterly dysfunctional. But it, just broadly speaking, is all of this just historical happenstance? And then for some bizarre reason, we can't get rid of these and they're because they're used for political purposes today. So, sorry, that was kind of confusing and long-winded. Yeah, so it's it's it, it is right that the the fiscal constitution in the states, at least the debt limitation part, and then public purpose requirements in state constitutions, were a reaction to the particular kinds of fiscal crises that nineteenth-century cities faced. So, growing industrial cities, building lots of infrastructure, and um, and the corresponding kind of corruption that may have accompanied that or overspending in order to attract. Again, there's always this idea that cities are competing to attract mobile capital, to attract the railroads, and then following the railroads will come industry and people and settlers and all this other stuff. So there's this idea that you've got to do this and you're forced to do this, but we need some restraint on that. Um, and so, and some economic historians think that those those kinds of debt limitations and constitutional restraints were a signal to that these these entities, these municipalities, were good borrowers and that they would pay, repay their debts, and that fostered development in these places. But it's not at all clear that that's what's going on. And in fact, it's it uh, when we look at say more contemporary practice. Um, you know, this what has happened over the course of the 20th century is suburbanization occurred in part because of the automobile, but for other reasons, too. Um, uh, Sunbelt cities grew into old industrial cities declined, um, and we continue to see that that, that pattern. And um, and now we're seeing the reverse of that in many instances. So if you were to think about Detroit in 1954, it was at the peak of its population. I think anybody, uh, most people would have predicted that Detroit would have been the most powerful city. It was part of the, it had an industry that was that was uh, key to lots of different technological advances, the automobile industry. Um, and it's in 1954 that the city starts to lose population and declines to where it is now, which is a half of that population, maybe. New York City, on the other hand, in the 70s, one might have said, oh, it's going to decline and lose population as well. And, and you, you don't want to invest in New York City, but we've seen how that that's turned out more recently. So part of this is, well, what do the debt markets have to do with all these, these ups and downs? And it's not at all clear to me that they have very much to do with it at all. Um, that doesn't say that that's not to say that there's that that we shouldn't be aware of the kinds of uh, 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 debt that cities are experiencing, say pension debt or other forms of debt. And pension debt is a big one. But this is the pension debt is a function of a, of a of an aging workforce and a workforce that was designed often in cases where cities had higher populations and more tax revenue. And again, the loss of that tax revenue, the decline in population is not attributable to, to taking on too much debt. It's just a function of, of the aging of the population and other, other kinds of factors. 
So I think some of these things are holdovers from a different time. Uh, reformers often react to a specific economic event and they put in try to put in place procedural mechanisms to prevent that from happening again. And, and, and then what we see is a response to that. And one of the responses, as I mentioned, to debt limitations is just to shift all that, uh, all that debt into entities that aren't restricted by the debt. And so um, in Texas alone, there are, there are hundreds and hundreds of special purpose entities, agricultural districts, health care districts, housing districts, water districts. They're all issuing debt. And in many cases, the, there are no debt limitations or you can, you can put debt into each one of these entities and the overall debt uh, surpasses any kind of debt limitation. And so they're, they're either, they either don't work or they're being avoided. Um, and, and the factors that lead to fiscal distress are not a factor of overborrowing. They might be something quite different. And so we want to be aware of what those things are. So one of the things that strikes me about a lot of these restrictions on borrowing is that it's hard to figure out what the problem is that the restriction is designed to address. So they all seem kind of incoherent. But I'm wondering if there's something to be said for the restrictions that are targeting sort of the intergenerational aspect of borrowing. Um, and I'm thinking in particular of the requirement, if I, I, I think some states maybe still have this, although you'll correct me if I'm wrong, but the, the requirement that there be a referendum to approve uh, the, the appropriation to service new debt, which I don't know whether whether those make sense, although I know uh, a bunch of economists like them. But the, uh, those seem to me at least to have a fairly clear sense of the problem they're trying to deal with, this uh, tendency to you know favor current consumption uh, even at the expense of of future taxpayers. And so I'm I'm wondering if we should just be thinking uh, separating some of these kinds of borrowing restrictions out as having plausible value and then perhaps eliminating others like hard debt limits as, uh, as serving no useful function at all. Yeah. So, I, I mean, I think you can try to distinguish and, I, you know, we don't want to paint with too broad a brush, but I would just say for debt, again, debt elections, again, the special purpose entities are intended to, to circumvent that. And maybe we should make the, therefore make the restrictions tighter, but you know, an example would be um, often say you want to, you want, you need to, you need to convince the electorate that you need a bond issue to build a new school. Often those, those, um, those bond issues fail. Why? Because the people in the town, maybe it's a, a more elderly population, or it's just the majority of the population doesn't have kids in the schools currently. But that's a kind of an example where, um, uh, the current electorate is is probably being short-sighted in certain kinds of ways, right? Which is they're not investing in the kids <laughs> for the community. And they're also um, maybe making a decision that, that would um, dissuade young homeowners with children from coming into the jurisdiction. It seems like a backwards kind of, uh, kind of view. So the voters can also be quite short-sighted in this way. And so I don't think we have an ideal way of making sure that the 
um, local government officials are, are, are making sure to take into account the interests of current voters, uh, current residents, and future residents, and smoothing out that spending across a number of generations, which is what you want to do for infrastructure that's going to be worked, uh, that's going to be put into place and might last 30 years or 50 years or so on. That's an appropriate way to to, to fund that through uh, debt service. Um, it's very hard to figure out who the who 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 the we know who the current residents of a of a jurisdiction are, but we don't know who the future residents of a ju jurisdiction are, and we may worry that, um, for example, that a, 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 a and this might be why citizens should vote. A local government's going to favor future residents over over current residents. That would be the reverse, and in fact, we might if we if we're using this competitive model of local government kind of uh, in, interlocal government competition, what you might see is that the city invests a lot of money to attract uh, desirable citizens, wealthier people, uh, young workers, and doesn't spend a lot of money on current citizens uh, because um, they're looking to, to um, uh, increase um, desirable folks over, over the current population. And we might be concerned about that as well. So, uh, Rich, if, if I may uh, change course a little bit, although we're talking about the same thing, I want to see if we can drill down more on the stuff that you and I have been working on uh, recently. And also, I, I'm hoping to get uh, Mark hooked into so that we can continue this adventure. But just to provide some context to this, I had noticed recently, and in the course of a prior article that uh, Mark and I had done, that there was writing about the effects of constraints on using bankruptcy uh, at the local level in the US. So as a backdrop for anyone who doesn't know, although I, I think most of the people who listen to this podcast are familiar with this, there is a huge debate in the sovereign debt literature, maybe one of the biggest debates in this literature on the impact of having bankruptcy accessibility for sovereigns versus constraining bankruptcy accessibility for sovereigns and whether or not constraining bankruptcy accessibility reduces the cost of capital. And there's a there are a number of famous theoretical articles that assert that constraining bankruptcy accessibility probably reduces the cost of capital uh, for sovereigns because in the absence of the th that constraint, uh, sovereigns will just overborrow because that's what local politicians do. And the problem with this is that it's just been very hard to come up with good empirical evidence uh, to support that. But part of the reason for our inability to come up with evidence on that front might be that the data is hard to get, good data is hard to get. And this is where municipal debt in the US comes to the forefront. 
because as a result of these 19th century rules that were put in place at the state level, we have in the United States a considerable amount of variation across the states as to whether or not local municipalities are allowed to access Chapter 9 federal bankruptcy or not. And so from a researcher's point of view, this is nirvana. You can look at these different states and you can look at the municipalities in the different states and their borrowing costs. And you can, you know, you can look at a municipality uh, in North Carolina, and you can look at a municipalities right across the border in South Carolina. And if they have slightly different rules, you can compare their cost of capital and see, you know, does it act, do investors actually think that the access to bankruptcy or lack of access to back bankruptcy impacts the behavior of local politicians? And and there are some famous studies, including published in the very best of financial economics journals that I know are hugely hard uh, to get uh, publication in uh, from my various failures to get published. Uh, I, I, I know this. And they assert that there is something close to a 10 basis points uh, difference in your borrowing costs if you deny access to bankruptcy. So if you deny access to chapter nine bankruptcy to your municipalities, you borrow at a much lower cost. And uh, I went to Rich very excited. Uh, I was a new faculty member at UVA uh, trying to kiss the ass of my, the existing uh, hoity-toity faculty at UVA and trying to get them to, to be nice to me. And I go to Rich's office and uh, because he's one of the more friendly ones, I go to Rich's office and I say, here, here's an exciting article. And um, maybe we can think about uh, uh, talking more about this and the exciting findings. And Rich is like, this is very strange and does not seem uh, plausible. So Rich, you can tell um, your version of this story, but I want to set it up before we talk about the findings that we had in terms of how you reacted to this perspective from the economics and finance literature. Oh, so me too. We're all friendly here at UVA, just to say. <laughs> um, very hoity-toity. Very hoity-toity. We're very, 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 very prestigious. Um, so, you know, having written a little bit about this stuff in terms of the, 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 the kinds of rules that are in place in state constitutions and being skeptical of how those rules have played out and being skeptical of the debt markets disciplining function, right? So these two things, I think, are not particularly effective. It struck me that the bankruptcy or the no bankruptcy rule should fit into these things, either the debt limitations or the public purpose limitations, and that there were always going to be either workarounds at the local level or, uh, or that these things were not being applied in the same, you know, in the way that maybe the economists or the uh, thought they were being applied. And so looking at the, these, I was skeptical that those kinds of background rules would make a huge difference, in part because states that have allow access to bankruptcy and states that don't allow access to bankruptcy, it seemed 
it seemed pretty arbitrary how how those states came to those conclusions and or maybe on a regional basis or something like that we haven't quite figured out when uh these states have decided to go in one direction or another which would be interesting to to figure out historically um but it struck me that 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 those decisions were not being were not partic particularly based on any kind of um um uh, background uh, assumptions about the cost of capital. So, um, so that was that was my skepticism. And then when we dug in and have dug in, where uh, Me Too convinced me to to do an empirical paper for the first time ever in my career. Um, uh, and it's really not much of an empirical paper. We may mainly just count things, but um, we were trying to figure out whether players in the municipal debt market actually care about bankruptcy and access to bankruptcy or not. And what we want to be clear about here is that we're talking about a, a debt market that is not just cities or municipalities or towns. It's all these special districts. It's all, all, all tax-exempt bonds, which are issued by a multitude of different kinds of entities in lots of different industry sectors. So across hospitals, irrigation, planning districts, all kinds of stuff, arts districts, et cetera. And to think that the bankruptcy access or non-access would have significant effects across all those sectors in all these states seemed just implausible. You know, I, I can't speak to the economics of these studies, of the finance studies and, 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 uh, uh, and their shortcomings. But our, our paper then, um, as Me Too knows, looks at whether bankruptcy access is disclosed in the offering documents for municipal bonds. And we looked at 600 municipal bonds from across different sectors, across different states. And we find really that it's not disclosed or it's disclosed vaguely, even in states where, uh, where the law does not allow access to bankruptcy. If this was good and if creditors wanted this, Presumably, the the issuers in those states would shout it from the rooftops. That is, they would say right on the front page of offering documents, we are not permitted to go bankrupt under state law. And they do not. They say, maybe we could go bankrupt, maybe not. We're not sure. For the most part, it's just boilerplate, vague, vague statements about possibility. And that struck us as interesting if, in fact, creditors care about this information. And then we talked to participants in the bond market, uh, lawyers and judges and ratings agency folks and some others uh, on condition that we didn't reveal their names. And um, they, they, they were puzzled. They said, no, no one really cares about bankruptcy. They don't even care in distress, in, in a distress situation. It just doesn't come up in part because uh, local governments and these kinds of entities don't go bankrupt that often, uh, in fact, very rarely. And so um, suddenly we're in a situation where the practice of the industry, at least from the issuer's perspective and from our interviews with buyers from the buyer's perspective, is that they don't really think much about bankruptcy as an issue. And so then that raises a puzzle about um, about. Um, what we're seeing, if it's true, about the cost of debt, um, and when you compare uh, a state that that allows access to bankruptcy and a state that doesn't, 
um, and that 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 is that sounds um, that sounds less plausible once we've uh, dug into the both the offering documents and and doing the interviews with uh, with participants in the market. So I, I really like this this project. I guess if I can put on my cynical hat though for a second, just to sort of probe at the underlying assumption about what disclosures ought to look like. So really simplistically, it seems to me that all this comes down to is a bet on, so fine, you could disclose if there is already an authorizing statute, although presumably that's a simple enough inquiry, maybe you don't need to. And for everybody else, it comes down to a bet on whether if the shit hits the fan, state actors are going to change their minds and authorize the entity if, to the extent it needs authorization to file for bankruptcy. And I'm kind of wondering how you even disclose that, um, you know, because since it's a, it's a political constraint, that's hard to imagine. So just as a rough analog, when countries issue bonds subject to their own law, all of the rules could change, could change, subject to some weak legal and some hard to define political constraints. And they never, you never see disclosures that say, well, we're promising to pay you and we're promising, you know, a variety of other things. Maybe those promises are embedded in our law. But you know, just so you know, if push comes to shove, we might change that stuff. And yeah, there are some constraints on retroactivity. And yeah, you know, there'd be uh, political dynamics and you know we just want you to know all that stuff like nobody nobody discloses uh, risks that are inherent in the governing authorities ability to change the rules retroactively and so i'm i'm is it really surprising that we don't see those kinds of disclosures here since it it seems to me like that maybe i'm thinking of this incorrectly but it seems like that really is the determining factor in terms of whether most of these entities are able to file or not. So, you know, I think, Mark, you're right about this. Um, it's, it's only surprising, the lack of disclosure is only surprising if you believe that creditors care about this thing. If, however, you think that creditors are fully aware that sovereign and sub-sovereigns uh, governments are able to change the rules on the fly and no amount of credible commitment is possible, right? If if that's if everybody in the market feels that way, then no disclosure is really required of this type. There might be disclosure about, well, we can tax this much or here's our revenue source or various other things. But it, and then we shouldn't see though then differences between uh, entities that can access bankruptcy and, and entities that can't, because that could change, right? That could change down the line. It could go the other direction. Um, there's lots of circumstances in which the background legal regime would make no difference. And if if the market is quite aware of that, that you can't really bind sovereigns and sub-sovereigns, then the credible commitment literature kind of goes out the window. And that's fine. That That could be a conclusion that one draws. What what my understanding of the sovereign and sub-sovereign space is that, nevertheless, governments try to make these commitments. One way they might do it is they might uh, adopt a choice of law provision that says our law is not going to govern this. New York law is going to govern this debt 
or, or, or English law in London is going to govern this debt. And that's a way of saying, we're not going to change the rules at the back end. And the, the fiscal constitution in the states was intended to do that too, right? We're not going to take on more debt. That's going to be a restriction. And you'll know about that restriction up front. That's a credible commitment that we're making. Can, can I just, so I, I, I hear your response and it makes a ton of sense to me, but I, let me just pose a hypothetical that maybe harmonizes both these things, or at least maybe it just restates why it's not intuitively puzzling to me that we don't see, we don't see discussion. Disclosure. So, you know, the United States, let's just take it as an example, you know, issues a bunch of local law debt. And we like to think that because of constitutional limits and you know, other structural features of the US government and legal system, that the retroactive changes are certainly not impossible. We know that from past experience, but um uh maybe more difficult than they would be in say Ruritania, uh, where it issues local law debt, um, but has a history of changing the rules and weak legal institutions to constrain the government. And so it wouldn't surprise me if you know you saw a premium that investors charge Ruritania, but you still don't see the countries disclose details about their ability to change the rules and information about what the constraints on their ability to change the rules might be because first of all investors know that the risk is there but second of all what what can you disclose it's all too subject to too many factors and too multiply determined to give investors meaningful information by way of ex ante disclosures and so you could say yeah it's the credible commitments actually that literature does make some sense but it's still not puzzling to to see no disclosures in the documents. Am I is yeah. that still not the right way, right way to think about it? So I think we can distinguish. Right? We're looking at disclosures as a proxy for certain kinds of policies, and um, so it may simply be. And I've written some of this that you know why don't we see a, a significant number of municipal defaults in the 20th century? Um, and even after 2008, the Great Recession, there was predictions that we'd see massive waves of municipal defaults, and we we don't. We see much many more defaults on the private side than in the municipal debt side. And one reason for that is we have a pretty robust, mature, uh, and 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 relatively. Uh, uh, sophisticated taxation system. We basically collect taxes in this country. We're able to, the local governments are basically able to collect collect revenue in various ways. Not all cities, of course, there's some that are in, in quite uh, uh, deep fiscal distress and have trouble collecting their taxes. But we have a tax system that roughly works. We have a, we have, um, um, a political system and a legal system that is um, as relatively stable in various ways. And that in itself might be all the kind of credible commitment you need, right? That um, the, and it's a, it goes on faith. The United States will pay back its debts. Some other countries might not. Um, and this might be the case with, with certain cities. Then the disclosures might not matter at all in that respect. It's just, you look at New York City and you, you make a bet. Are they going to, are they going to pay back their debts to build this bridge or to build this housing and to build these schools? 
yeah, they probably will. They're going to be robust and they're going to be economically sound and, and we can kind of predict that. And then in the disclosures, you're not going to see very much at all. And that may be a reason we don't see very much at all, but that also seems to me to point towards away from thinking that any specific institutional design like bankruptcy access or non-access, debt limitations or non-debt limitations, tax and expenditure limitations or non-limitations, any particular institutional setup, it, it points me in the direction of saying that's not going to be that relevant. What's relevant is, say, macroeconomic factors, the underlying legal uh, and political situation in that particular place, whether they're in decline or they're not in decline. And in fact, when we talk to ratings agency people and others, they say we don't really care about the underlying legals, right? And so it's not that we're we're surprised by the lack of disclosure. What we're surprised by is any assertion that the underlying legals are doing any work. And what we do see in the disclosure is we see, for example, they say if if it's if if they they're often clear about whether the debt is backed by the full faith and credit of the state, for example. They either say no or yes, and they want to be very clear at, at the up front where the where the payment for this kind of uh, uh, debt is going to come from, whether it comes from revenues or it comes from some someplace else. And in the municipal debt market, there's there's just a lot of confusion. It turns out when we talk to folks about the status of certain kinds of debt, what is it secured by, and that that creates some confusion too. So. The big picture is it's not exactly clear how investors make these kinds of decisions, right? Um, they're looking industry specifically. They're looking at revenue, uh, uh, you know, revenue projections and various and the stream of revenue and how guaranteed it that is. But a big event comes out of nowhere, 2008 recession or interest rates go up or they go down. These things are, are, are in some cases going to have uh, more effects than 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 uh, the specific uh, institutional legal regime that is is in place. That matters to us because then there are lots of debates about whether there should be access to bankruptcy or not access to bankruptcy, et cetera, et cetera. And if if those things don't really matter, and that's what we're trying to figure out, then those debates become a little bit um, irrelevant. Rich, thank you so much. We know we're at the end of our time and you have probably other fancier podcasts that you have to go to, but we are so grateful you came to our little podcast. But I, I also, I want to close with just uh, my sense of this data that we spent so much time with our research assistants collecting and then we ended up realizing that nobody seems to really care about the thing that in the academic research we are asserting is the most important factor. But what my takeaway on this is this municipal debt market where you are seeing bond issues in the hundreds of millions being put out there every day is sort of, it looks like this giant Ponzi scheme. It looks like the rate of issuance that we were seeing with real estate instruments in 2007, 2008, right before the crash. So nobody's paying attention to this market. It's very quiet and sleepy, but it's a multi-trillion dollar market where documentation sucks. Nobody has any understanding of what's going on. 
which all suggests that maybe it's ripe for a crash. Uh, but with that, thank you so much, Rich, for joining us and indulging our questions. And we hope you'll come back someday soon. Thank you both for having me. That was really fun. And um, and I, I hope you I will be invited back at some point. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. Rachel.